0: well uh, this is our uh, last time uh, together for one of these Saturdays I hope that it's been uh, reasonably helpful or edifying for you um, it's certainly been it's been good for me uh, to be able to participate in your lives again a little bit um, it's, it's been a reminder actually that I've, you know I've actually Believe it or not, I've missed you all very, very much. And so this has been good for me uh, to see you on these Saturdays. And a good reminder to me um, that maybe maybe you don't fully appreciate this because you're part of the environment. It's part of your environment. Um, but Crestwick really does have uh, a significant community of learners who who want to learn and grow and you don't find that everywhere so what you have is very special I'd really encourage you to keep keep developing it and cultivating it now last week um, you know we talked a little bit about uh, sort of the theology some of the uh, formulate for a uh, formalization of Christology from the early church and some of that becomes a little bit abstract we didn't go too deeply into it um, Mainly because I'm I'm not really able to to plumb the depths of some of these things that other other minds have have thought of, uh, but last week was a little bit more on the theoretical side. Uh, today I want to do a little bit more of almost Bible study, and so this might seem really strange, but if you actually have a Bible, uh, that might be helpful, and we can look up uh, various passages. And it might be helpful for you to actually see some some verses with the text in front of you. Now, one of the reasons, actually, that that is so uh, desperately important. I'll just make one comment about the the comments in the chat section right now. If you have absolutely no idea uh, what Chuck and Colin are going on about, uh, there's this little video on YouTube about uh, Trinitarian heresies with these two little Irish guys, uh, patterned on Sam, actually. Uh, called Donald and Connell, and they go over various uh, improper formulations of the Trinity. So that's what uh, they're talking about there. Now, we'll leave that and move on to actually the biblical text, because I came across this week, actually, what I'd love to do is go through uh, a fairly long section of material on the doctrine of scripture. That is, what is the word of God? Why do we go to the Bible as our authority and all these sorts of things? But I found this week, actually, what is likely to be um, the finest statement of the nature of scripture that I've ever come across. And I've I've read a fair number of uh, books uh, in theology on the doctrine of scripture. And this one, um, not surprisingly, came from uh, probably the finest theologian uh, today, and one of my very favorite books, and one of my favorite authors, uh, the Chuck Norris biography, uh, Against All Odds. And so as I was reading this book this week, um, you know, it, it even includes 16 new pages of photos, which is pretty fantastic. Uh, I, was, I was working on my roundhouse kicks, and studying theology. And Chuck tells us, this is what the letters of the Bible mean. Basic instructions before leaving earth. So your acronym, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. And that's what Chuck's friend Gary says to him. And then he says, I had never heard that acronym before, but I said, you know, Gary, you are absolutely right. So, from Chuck Norris himself, we're going to turn to the text because we have authorization now. And uh, what what higher source could you want than an endorsement for from Chuck Norris? So, before we leave Earth, then uh, we want to be consulting what Scripture says, and that's what we're going to do. Now, we talked a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago about how the different Gospels. Uh, introduce Christ in different ways and uh, Mark's gospel we mentioned sort of the, probably the first gospel written and he uses the word gospel in the generic sense of good news a glad proclamation so this, is, this isn't this isn't originally a Christian term uh, it's drawn from sort of the the Roman world around them and so Mark sits down to write the good news He's not writing a gospel because there is no such thing as a gospel genre. He's actually creating the genre as he writes. And we call them gospels because of that first sort of usage uh, there in Mark. Now, Mark says, if you have your Bibles, you can can actually turn to the gospel of Mark. Uh, We'll spend a little bit of time in here. Now, we could bounce back and forth with the synoptics, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the word synoptic just means, uh, it's from two Greek words, means to see together And so the Matthew, Mark, and Luke give you sort of overlapping visions of Jesus, but they're all very similar. So we could move around uh, between the three, but we'll just stay in Mark, actually. And then in a little bit, we will uh, look at John, because John has some unique contributions, and probably the highest Christology that you find uh, in the four Gospels. So if you look at Mark 1.1, It says the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And as I mentioned, you know, a couple of weeks ago, these two titles, Messiah or Christ, and Son of God, are the two dominant titles for Jesus in the gospel. So he's giving you right in this opening sentence the framework of how you're to interpret Christ. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. Now these Uh, statements or these titles then are also used at extremely important points in the gospel so if you look at uh, verse 11 here you have the the uh, baptism of jesus and the spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove and you have a voice from heaven that says you are my son whom i love with you i am well pleased so you immediately get this declaration from god the father you are the son you are my son. So there's a special relationship here between the father and the son. Then in chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Whenever the impure spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the son of God. In, in fact, so this is fascinating. The, Mark begins the gospel by saying, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. The father declares that Jesus is the son but then the forces of darkness declare that Jesus is the son as well. In fact, this is one of the reasons why Jesus in Mark's gospel, not just Mark, but in the synoptics, Jesus is continually muzzling evil spirits. That is, it's because they actually know who he is that he won't let them speak when he casts them out sometimes, because they are aware that he is the son of God. So, what you have is this very interesting uh, sort of perspective where the father declares that this, that Jesus is his son in a special way, but the demons know it as well. Then chapter five, uh, verse seven flip there, chapter five, verse seven. This again is, uh, the legion of demons. He said at the top of his voice, what do you want with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now, what's fascinating about this, there's actually a lot going on here. Um, I think what you have with the legion of demons is the culmination of a couple chapters in Mark's gospel are driving towards uh, identification of who Jesus is and what he's capable of doing, which is why you trust him. So uh, chapter four, of course, you know, it, it's the famous parable of the sower. And so, you know, the, the, there's, there's a lot in chapter four that's about seeds, actually, you know, the seeds being scattered all over the place and you know, some falls in different types of soil, some falls on pathways, you know, they should have put mulch down or something and it, doesn't really go go very well because the birds come and eat it up Uh, and the idea there is that the kingdom of God the word of the kingdom of God is being broadcast indiscriminately and in some places it grows and in some places it uh, doesn't and in some places it grows quickly but there's no fruit and in other places there's an incredible harvest but then Jesus compares in chapter 4 verses 26 and following he compares the the mystery of this of the growth of plants with the mystery of the kingdom he says you know it's amazing you the, the farmer does all of their work and yet day and night whether whether the farmer's sleeping or not there, there's this process that's going on there's growth there's development and that comes from god there, there's a mystery there's there's a beauty here that you know god is sovereignly in control of what's happening we do our work but how it actually functions we're not quite sure And then he compares the kingdom to a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's full grown, it's a tree and the birds of the air come and and make their nests there and all of the rest, perch in its branches. So the question is, well, why should you trust Jesus? I mean, he's basically saying to the disciples who've never seen the kingdom of God, look, the kingdom of God is like a seed. Trust me, one day it will be a tree. Well, why should they trust him? I mean, this, this sounds like, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk. I mean, why on earth would you ever trust that there's this sort of these magic seeds that are going to grow into a kingdom? Well, then you have the question, well, why should you trust Jesus? I mean, why should you trust this guy? What can defeat him? And he starts demonstrating power over all kinds of things. So immediately get into the boat to cross in the storm. And Uh, he tells the wind and the waves to be still and literally actually he says be muzzled uh, which is the same word he uses earlier in mark's gospel when he casts out evil spirits so the storm is conceived of as an obstacle as an enemy to jesus and the mission of his disciples but natural forces can't control jesus he has control over them now look at verse 41 of chapter 4 it says the disciples were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. Who is this? What you don't expect is that the answer is going to come from a legion of demons. But that's exactly where you get your answer from. That question is answered in, in uh, you know, verse 7. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And so in a very odd way, this company of the army of hell actually has more insight into who Jesus is and the disciples. You know, they're, not, they're not surprised that Jesus has the power to cast them out. They're not surprised Jesus has the power to calm the storm. They know he's the son of the most high God. And so it's the disciples, in very interesting ways, are going to learn about the identity of Jesus sort of over time uh, through what he does, but also the testimony of both the Father and demons as well. Chapter 9, verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 7. This is the transfiguration where Jesus reveals his glory. The cloud appears and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And so in comparison, even with Moses and Elijah, again, you have this divine endorsement. And this divine endorsement, especially in Luke's gospel, is made very clear that this is in fulfillment of Moses' prophecy, that one day there will be a prophet that the Lord raises up amongst uh, his people. And Moses says, you will listen to him. And so here you have Moses, you have this, uh, they're on a mountain, the glory cloud is covering them. That's, uh, That's Sinai all over again. Uh, Sinai, glory cloud, voice, Moses, revelation, prophet. Listen to him. I mean, it's basically it's all this this sort of collocation of things saying this is the fulfillment of that text. And actually, in Luke's gospel as well, we're told. That Moses and Elijah were with Jesus speaking about his exodus, that is literally his exodus. And so you can just you can translate that as, as a lot of translations do, as his departure. And that's fine. Exodus does mean to depart, but in the whole context, it's almost certainly drawing to your mind the entire the actual exodus itself, which was fulfillment of Passover, liberation, and entering a promised land. And that's precisely what Jesus is going to do. He's going to Jerusalem to fulfill the exodus. He's going to be the Passover to lead his people out of slavery. And so I think likely it would be probably better if we, if we actually, that's one case where I think we actually probably better if we uh, almost transliterated that and had a more literal translation that Jesus is speaking about his exodus because in the whole motif, all the other elements, it's pretty clear What's going on? Anyway, here again, the father identifies the son. Now, chapter 12, verse 6 of Mark here. Chapter 12, verse 6. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. Now, this is in the middle of a parable, right? Uh, But the parable is comparing uh, the landowner who is the father. Who has sent servants to these tenants? Who rep- the, the the servants represent the prophets, and they've been beaten and killed. Now the son, note, he, he had one he had one left to send a son whom he loved. That's echoing that baptismal voice, or the voice from heaven when Jesus was baptized. So Jesus is now drawing on the father's affirmation of his sonship in order to. Uh, tell people or show people what's going on in terms of their rejection of him. Also, just to, just to note as well, you remember the temptation in the desert, the devil, the, the whole thrust of the temptation is, if you are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God, then the angels will keep you from harm, etc. Then chapter 14, uh, 1461 through 62 the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now, that's almost exactly the first verse of Mark's gospel. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the son of God? That's what Mark claimed in the very first verse. here, the chief priest, uh, the high priest. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, just tuck that verse into your mind, uh, in terms of Son of Man reference, because we'll come back to that uh, in a little bit. And then, chapter 15, verse 39. 1539, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Now, it's not quite that definite. It might be more. Surely this man was a Son of God. Uh, there, there's debates about exactly how to translate it. But the force here is this, this centurion is recognizing there is something very unique uh, about this person who has just died surely this person is the son of god so a lot of people would argue that son of god is really the heart of mark's christology like this is the one thing you really want to know about jesus it's the first thing you're told about him in verse 1 but this is also the centurion statement is also the last time a title is given to jesus in the gospel so a son of God is sort of that literary inclusio that actually brackets the entire gospel. It's the first and the last title that Jesus is assigned. So if you want to understand what is Mark really trying to tell you, Mark is really trying to communicate to you, amongst other things, that Jesus is, in fact, the son of God. Okay? Now, that just raises this question. What does it mean to be the Son of God? I mean, where is this title coming from? And how are we to understand it? Because there's actually a lot of layers in it. And I think that evangelicals have been far too hasty in jumping to an assumption that a reference to Jesus as the Son of God actually means that he is divine. That is, we tend to take the sun language in terms of ontology. That is, it's a reference to his nature. And so it's become some sort of ontological claim. Jesus is the son of God because he's divine. Now, I would argue that you can get there. In fact, I would argue that 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 is something essential of it. It is is referring to Jesus's nature, uh, to his essence. But there's categories you need to build up first you know, before you, you can really establish that with any certainty whatsoever. So this is, this is the last uh, seminar. And so we will, uh, this is your last chance to get points. And, and this, is, this is critical. Um, in fact, the person, and this isn't a joke either. The person who gets the most points is not going to have to fill out a survey in in the hopes of getting uh, some likely substandardly written book but rather if you win then from the good heart of sam mccallum you are going to get a free lunch from any restaurant of your choice so thanks for that generosity sam you're you're a trooper um, and, and just so you know, family members are disqualified. So sorry, Lois, you can't win this one. Um, even though I'm sure you would, but Sam will, Sam will buy you dinner tonight anyway. So don't worry about it. All right. Who is the son of God in scripture? In other and don't say Jesus. That's the easy answer. Who else is referred to as the son of God in scripture? Okay, so Colin gives me David and Solomon. Where? What text? Okay, let's let, we'll we'll come back to that. Let's go antecedently. So let's go in chronological order. Who? Where is the? Who is the first son of God? Adam. Adam. Adam okay. Wow, Sarah, that's like that was really really speedy, and so not only was it right, but with this, with the speed, I'm going to give you eight points for the correct answer. And I'm going to cube it for your speed. And so that's, whenever you cube something, you just times it by the exponent. So eight times three, 21 points. All right, now. Great start. Great start. It's going to be hard to beat. Uh, Adam is the son of God, and he's the son of God for a few reasons. And and you actually have this explicitly declared in the genealogy in Luke's gospel, right? So Adam is the son of God uh, because there is no um, human parent, especially created, and he's the image bearer of God. A- and you find that you, you beget in your own image and so carrying on from adam you know his children are are the image bearers of god as well so adam is considered the first son of god very good where's the next reference that you get to to son of god it's actually this one's actually plural Uh, right before the flood with the uh sons of god and the daughters of man that's exactly right that's right so you get the in genesis 6 right before the flood uh the the sons of god see that the daughters of men are beautiful and they um have relations with them and there's conception and all of the rest so is it, i mean there's a massive debate over what, what precisely uh how precisely we're supposed to interpret sons of god there whether these are, are angelic beings or whether they are you know powerful kings or something but nonetheless that's the next reference sons of God. So you, and it's a pluralization. Now you get the same expression, sons of God later on in scripture. Where do you find that? Sorry, that was another eight cubed. So another 21 points. So 21 plus 21, you've got like 36 points. All right. Uh, Where do you find sons of God next? Someone needs to just read Colin's answers in the chat and then speak them aloud and they'll steal all his points. Oh yeah. Oh, Colin. Sorry. I'm not really paying attention to that. Yeah, that's good. Um, Although when it's a, when it's a lowercase J that actually says job. Uh, So we're going to go with Job and no one gets points for that except me. Um, And yeah, so you have the sons of God coming to present themselves before the throne of God. Now, most, a lot of translations will bring that across. Uh, as a rightly in terms of translation as angels, but it's literally sons of God. And so angels are classified as the sons of God. Now when you get David, you have David and Solomon, you have this Davidic covenant, particularly second Samuel chapter 7, okay. And so in second Z- Samuel chapter 7, you know, God promises that he will be a father to the davidic lineage and so the davidic king will be adopted as his son and this is what you get in psalm 2 7 Um, you are my son today i have begotten you or you are my son today i become your father and so when the davidic king takes his place on the throne he is considered the adopted son of god he reigns on behalf of his father and so because god is the great king of israel And so the Davidic king, the king of Israel, is a is a is a lower K king reigning on behalf of the capital K king, who is God. And so there's this family mediation that is uh, the father is the king, the human king in the Davidic line is adopted as his son. Now, this becomes really important because Psalm 2-7 is applied to Jesus several times in the New Testament in actually very creative ways. And so, I mean, in, in Romans, and in Hebrews, you know, in Revelation, uh, you see very clearly that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, Book of Acts as well. So this whole idea of, of sonship is not just constrained to to Jesus as an ontological category. That is, you can't just say, well, if someone's the son of God, it means they're deity. That's not the case at all, because angels are the sons of God. Human beings are considered the sons of God. And so you can't just jump from, oh, look, here's a reference to the son of God. Therefore, Jesus is deity. I mean, it doesn't work that way. Now, there's also one. That hasn't been mentioned yet. So, uh, who else is considered? Um, yeah, Colin. Yeah, Elohim, the judges, leaders, Pentateuch, Psalms, John, Acts. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's just call it a day. Uh, that's that's about that's about everything. Uh, uh, a, but we also missed one. Who is the Who is the firstborn son of God before Jesus? Israel is See, no you can just tell me like honestly if this is not interesting because you all know this and I'm just like saying things that you all know like I apologize I was also very well aware as I was thinking about this particular one uh today i was thinking it's almost like at some level At some level, this makes absolutely no sense because I'm pretty sure I've taught all of these things a hundred times before in the last eight years at Crestwick. So, uh, yeah, like at some point, I don't have anything new to say. And if you don't know some of this, then uh, well, I'm not going to say it's my fault because it, it clearly wasn't. It would be your fault for not knowing it already. But I felt like this might be really redundant or like really, really repetitive because you know my mind runs in certain tracks and we'll probably just go in those directions again. But Israel is the firstborn son. And you get this in, you know, in Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt, I called my son. You know, that's applied to Jesus by Matthew, but it's very clear Hosea 11 is not in the first instance about Jesus. It's about Israel coming out in the Exodus because the next thing you're told is, and the more I called him, the more he rebelled against me. You know, that's a paraphrase, but it's basically the idea. The more I called him, the more he went away. Well, that's not Jesus. And so, what you have is partly sonship is Jesus then fulfilling out the category that is Israel is the firstborn son of God and is supposed to image their father, and they fail miserably. And so, Jesus uh, recapitulates the history of Israel. And I, I know I've said this like a thousand times, so I apologize, I'll say it very, very quickly. Um, you, you get this in, in Matthew's gospel where Matthew uh, has Jesus um, with the risk to the newborn children, reminds you of Egypt. Uh, Jesus is delivered out of a place where newborn children are being executed. Moses is delivered out of a place where newborn children are being executed. And so Jesus goes to Egypt, out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel comes out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness, has the revelation on Sinai. Matthew has Jesus come out of Egypt through the waters of baptism, immediately into the wilderness, then gives the Sermon on the Mount. And so you have this mirroring, and, and he's in the wilderness 40 days, the way Israel's in the wilderness for 40 years. So you have this mirroring of, my son is in Egypt, he comes out of Egypt, he goes through the waters into the wilderness, and there's covenant revelation. And so Jesus is simply, and again, every temptation in the wilderness is if you are the son of God. And so what Jesus is doing is is he is succeeding where Israel failed. He's also succeeding where Adam failed because Adam is tempted by the devil in paradise and falls. Jesus is tempted by the desert by the devil in the wilderness and succeeds. And so actually uh, the wilderness temptation is Jesus fulfilling the sonship of Adam and Israel simultaneously. Now, You start working through some of that, and then Jesus is the fulfillment of kingship. He's Israel's great king. We'll look at that in a little bit. Uh, He fulfills the Davidic covenant. Everything David was supposed to be, everything Solomon was supposed to be, Jesus actually is. So he's the fulfillment of Adam. He's the fulfillment of Israel. He's the fulfillment of David and Solomon. He's the fulfillment of kingship. So Jesus, interestingly enough, is actually the fulfillment of sonship everything a son is supposed to be jesus is and that's not merely the case in terms of his deity that as the second person in the trinity he is the son it's also he fulfills sonship in the human created realm as well and so we'd almost want to say and i want to be really careful with this particularly last when we we're talking about um, christological heresies this is not about the person or the natures but it's about the role. You'd almost want to say that Jesus fulfills sonship in at least a dual sense, and one of those senses in a multiple sense. And so he fulfills sonship as in deity and humanity, and he fulfills sonship in humanity in multiple ways. Now, we'll also talk a little bit more because there's a splintering off uh, of how you perceive and understand sonship in deity that is jesus is the divine son in more than one way so sonship is extraordinarily multifaceted and even the sonship of deity is multifaceted and the sonship of humanity is, is extraordinarily multifaceted so the sonship of christ then becomes this e- enormous category and it's not sufficient just to say well how do you know that jesus is god well john three sixteen says god sent his son into the world well, that doesn't mean anything in terms of deity. Like, it does, but you have to get there. You, you, you can't assume it's a statement of deity. It, it takes a lot of work to actually establish that that's what's going on. So Jesus is the son of God. That's the thing Mark wants you to know. John will develop sonship in a slightly different way. So we'll spend a little bit more time talking about this when we get there. Now, unless someone has any comments or questions or anything you'd like at this point. All right. I'm just going to say, because I have, I have no idea what's going on. Um, Sarah and Colin are tied. That's, that, that's what I'm going to say. Uh, cause I, I'm not sure who's someone's plagiarizing someone and, and don't worry if, if there's, if there's a tie then everyone, everyone wins. Like not even the people who tied everyone in the class gets dinner at the keg from Sam plus bottles of wine, anything you want. Now, all right, another very extraordinarily important uh, title for Christ is, or for Jesus, is the Son of Man. And this is interesting because in the same way that some people have tried to interpret the deity of Christ in terms of him just being the Son of God, others have just sort of said, well, look, here's this phrase, son of man. And so that's what proves his humanity. So he just very easily say, well, he's the son of God, he's divine, son of man, he's human. But that's not likely at all uh, the way the son of man language is supposed to be interpreted uh, in the Gospels. So what's interesting is actually, theologically, son of man is one of the richest titles uh, that you get for Jesus in the gospels. And it's there's, there's three things, actually, that, that, are, that are pretty interesting uh, to note about this. One is that Son of Man is statistically um, Jesus' favorite way of describing himself. So he often speaks of himself as the Son of Man. And it's the only title he'll ever use really freely. He almost never refers to himself as the Messiah. And, and when he does, he's very careful at, explain, at making sure people know what he means. And so Jesus is not running around saying, by the way, I'm the Christ, but he's often referring to himself as the son of man. He's also not often referring to himself as the son of God. So son of man becomes basically his favorite self-designation and also the only one that he really uses freely. Now, what's fascinating about this, though, is that Jesus uses the title of himself very freely But in the Gospels, no one ever refers to Jesus by this title. So no one else ever says to him, you are the son of man. Now that by itself is very, very interesting. Because the disciples would have heard him refer to himself as son of man all the time. And yet you don't find the disciples sort of uh, reciprocate or, or mirroring that usage of Jesus. So they are not continually referring to him as the Son of man it's how he refers to himself and when you read Acts and you know the the writings in the early church you find that you know there's really no evidence at all that the early church referred to Jesus as the Son of man or at least not frequently and so what you discover then is that this really is almost certainly Jesus's preferred self-designation it's how he referred to himself it's not something that others really said about him now, He uses this title in a a few very important contexts. So he often uses it uh, to emphasize sort of his present authority on earth. So uh, he'll talk about the forgiveness of sins. So you may know the son of man has authority to forgive sins. Or so he'll refer to himself as son of man when he's emphasizing the authority that he has on earth. Now, he also uses the phrase, Uh, son of man, when he's referring to his suffering, death, and resurrection. So you get this whole cluster of times when Jesus will refer to the fact that he's going to the cross, that he's going to die, that he's going to be rejected. And he often refers to to himself as the son of man. The son of man will be rejected by men. They will do to the son of man what they wish and all of the rest. So son of man becomes a title that Jesus uses of himself when he's emphasizing his authority, but also when he's emphasizing his sacrifice his, and his atonement. He then also uses the term son of man when he's talking about coming in eschatological power and glory. So you'll recall uh, when Jesus is before the high priest, and I said just just sort of tuck that you know, away in your minds. You know, Jesus is asked you know, whether or not he is uh, the son of God. And he says, I am, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's you know, Mark fourteen sixty two. So, And, and this, is, this is very consistent. When Jesus talks about the, the, the return, it's the coming of the son of man. And you usually get this uh, sort of collocation of things uh, where you get Jesus speaking about returning in eschatological splendor, and it's the son of man and the glory, and the clouds, and the angels. And so you get that in the synopsis in, in, in a fair number of places. So Son of Man is actually, it's used by Jesus over 65 times in the Gospels, which is an enormous number of times. When you think about how how little uh, material the Gospels actually contain, sort of physically, there's only so many words in them. But Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man over 65 times. Um, now, some people have looked at Ezekiel as the uh, place to go in terms of interpreting this, because in Ezekiel, the prophet is often referred to as the son of man. When Ezekiel is referred to as the son of man, it really is a reference to his humanity. It really is. And so this is a reminder to him that in, in contrast to the great glory of God, that, you know, that, that incredible sort of pyrotechnic vision of God's glory that you get in, in Ezekiel 1, in contrast to this incredible being that you can't even describe, you are merely the Son of Man. You are a creature of dust. And so in Ezekiel, it's definitely functioning that way. There's no doubt. But there's another reference to the Son of Man in uh, the Old Testament and this is, one is not about uh, sort of humanity and lowliness and all the rest. And you can tell that Jesus isn't using uh, Son of Man in that Ezekiel sense because of the context of power and glory and all of the rest. Now, I know for sure some of you know this, uh, but where is that sort of key reference to the Son of Man in the Old Testament that helps us understand? Daniel 7.3. Sorry, pardon? Daniel seven three. Daniel seven. Well, I let's see. You you didn't say verse three, did you? I did. Daniel no. seven verse three. Yeah. No, you you didn't say verse three. I'm giving you a chance to not have said that. What does your Daniel seven verse three say? Maybe maybe you're reading it out of a different uh, thirteen. Seven thirteen. Oh, 13. Oh, I see. Because I wasn't quite sure if you really wanted to be four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. I just wasn't sure if that was the key to interpreting what Jesus means by son of man. You know, that's a bit of an of a obscure hermeneutical key. You know what? I've always been convinced that if you want to know what did Jesus mean when he referred to himself as the son of man, you just can't understand it unless you understand four great beasts, each different from the others came up out of the sea like if you, you just can't understand it without knowing what that verse means all right so let's see if verse 13 is a little better uh in my vision at night i looked and there before me was one like a son of man oh yes this, this is much better already coming with the clouds of heaven he approached the ancient of days and was led to his presence he was given authority glory and sovereign power all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Yeah, that sounds a lot better. Now, a couple of things which, which, we, which we don't have time for, but who has time for anything? So let me as well talk about this very briefly. We won't, we won't elaborate, but what's amazing about the book of Daniel is, and this actually is sort of an, an interpretive key to it, The book of Daniel is cyclical. That is, you get dreams and visions, but they're actually about the same thing. And the structure of the book, if you carefully charted the structure of the book, you can see this. So what you get is you don't get a series of consecutive things. You get a vision or a dream, which teaches you something And then you get another vision and dream, which teaches you the exact same thing through different imagery. And you can see, uh, you you can see this. If you read, I mean, read Daniel carefully, you can see this. Um, So what you have here is this is giving you another perspective on the eternal kingdom, which you've already had introduced earlier in earlier chapters. Now, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, again, you know, clouds are so essential uh, to understand. You know, you, you think of the song, you know, I've, I've looked at clouds from both sides now. And in, in terms of scripture, you need to do that. You need to look at clouds from both sides now. The, sometimes the cloud imagery uh, is talking about literal clouds. God sends the rain, you know, God it controls the weather patterns. But more uh, clouds are symbolic of the manifestation of God's glory. So, Israel is led by the pillar of cloud. Sinai is covered with the cloud and with the storm. Uh, you know, in the Mount of Transfiguration, they're covered with the cloud. In the Ascension, Jesus goes into the clouds. That is not sort of a, a statement of weather patterns. Uh, it, it's saying that Jesus has gone into the presence of God. Uh, and so, when Jesus says, so when Jesus talks about his return, he will be coming with the clouds of heaven. That is not saying it's going to be a cloudy day when the Lord returns. You know, it's saying that he comes with the father's glory. That's why you have, so you have clouds and angels all together. So he's coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. That's obviously God, the father. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. Well, who comes in the glory of God into the very throne room of God, is given sovereign power and has everyone worship him. This sounds an awful lot like Revelation 5, actually, which is the fulfillment of this in, in many ways. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom lasts forever. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so when Jesus is referring to himself as the son of man, at first it actually is ambiguous. What is he talking about? Because you do have that kind of Ezekiel reference, right? And so is Jesus just referring to his humanity? I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus' use of this title is so brilliant. It it can refer just to humanity. But this figure here is like the Son of Man. He's like a human being, but he's more than that. He's not merely a human being. And as Jesus begins to unfold his divine identity, Son of Man becomes almost a perfect vehicle for it. Because when he starts adding elements like clouds, glory, Father, power, angels, that's when at the end of his life, retrospectively, you can see the whole time Jesus was telling us something very, very important. He was telling us he's the Son of Man in Daniel 7. So he is fully human. He is fully divine. But what Jesus is really saying is, I am the fulfillment of this really, really incredible text. And then, obviously, you have to handle the four beasts coming out of the sea and all of the rest, but we don't have time uh, for that this morning. Now, uh, let's take a moment to go to the Gospel of John. John has uh, his own particular Christology uh most people would argue, I think, rightly, that John has the highest Christology that you get in the Gospels. I mean, not that he sees that Jesus is more divine than the other writers, but he's, he, he, he presents it a little bit more explicitly and in slightly different categories. So, you know, the very first verse of John 1, he forthrightly declares that the Logos is God, right? We talked about Logos Christology, uh, you know, last week or the week before. So we won't talk about it today, but there's this declaration he's God. Then at the end of the gospel, Thomas, my Lord and my God. I mean, these, are, these are forthright, you know, explicit you know, declarations of the deity of Christ. So, you know, John's gospel is, is not, you know, sort of beating around the bush whatsoever. Now, one of the key verses in uh, John's gospel is John fourteen nine, when Philip says, show us the father. And Jesus says, "Whoever has seen me has seen the Father." Now, now, now think about that. Like, think about some of these claims. Can you imagine if you know I were to say to you, and, and if I really meant it, if you say, "You know what you you want me to to teach you a little bit some a little something about God, but if you've seen me, you've seen God." can you imagine if someone, if someone said that and meant it? Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. In other words, Jesus is aware that he presents to people the fullness of deity and his disciples are actually so impressed by him that they believe it. Now, in John's Gospel, there are, there are references to Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. Those occur in you know, particularly important places. Uh, there are references to Jesus being uh, the king, and that's important as well. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of irony taking place at the cross with Pilate. When the Jews and Pilate are going back and forth and even the sign that's put on the cross, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Uh, You know, there's a lot of sarcasm. There's a lot of political leveraging going on. Uh, There's actually there's a whole you, you don't need to know this to see what's going on in the Gospels. But there's actually a whole historical backstory of the relationship that Pilate had with the Jews and some of the trouble, and Pilate was on very, very thin ice with Tiberius Caesar. And the Jews knew it because the Jews had already sent a delegation to Rome complaining about the brutality and stupidity of Pilate. And Pilate had sort of already received a message from, from Rome that basically said, listen, you either keep peace down there or you're done. And that meant either exile or death. So Pilate is highly motivated to keep the peace. And in John's gospel, Pilate is pleading with them, saying, look, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. And he's trying to, he's trying to, you know, I'll give you Barabbas, i will do all kinds of things. And the Jews say, listen, this man claims to be a king. We have no king but Caesar, which is the most transparent, bold-faced lie imaginable. And Pilate knows it, and they know it. But Pilate can't call them on it, because if he does, they'll just run down to Rome and say, Hey, we're loyal subjects. We said you're our king, and this pretender king is, is running around causing all kinds of trouble, and he, he's guilty of sedition and, and rebellion. We try to take care of it. And Pilate dismissed the case. And, and so they say, We have, oh hey, we have no king but Caesar. Oh, we 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 we're loyal to Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king of uh, you know a king is no friend of Caesar. And Caesar actually had, this, had this little guild, this little club. It's kind of like being part of the order of Canada. It was the friends of Caesar. And so what they're doing is they're saying, you know what? Like, hey, you, you, you let this guy go. This guy claims to be a king. We have no king but Caesar. And if, if you're on his side, you're no friend of Caesar. Your, your, your political career is done. You know, your, your life is over. And so it's actually... It's not just that Pilot is like totally weak and spineless the way he's often been cast. I mean, he is somewhat, but it's more actually, it's more just a crass political decision. Um, It's just sort of real politic. It's him looking at it saying, What does this guy's life mean to me? This is my career. This isn't worth it. So here, take him, do what you want with him, put him to death. I don't care. And and that's basically Pilot's response. It, It is a purely political decision, he's been leveraged into it. So, you know, but the the whole irony of it is that the proclamation again and again and again is this is the king, you know, this is the king, this is the king. And even on the cross, the crime that for which Jesus is dying is the proclamation written in the languages of of sort of the entire known literate world at that point in that area, in, in the three languages, this is the king of the Jews. And Pilate does it in terms of mockery and also in terms of a warning that this is the crime he's being executed for. But it's also actually the the highest declaration of truth. This is the king of the Jews. And and so there's there's a divine irony here, where for those who have eyes to see with the crown of thorns as his crown, here is the king reigning on the cross, being proclaimed as such in the languages of the world. Now, this leads to uh, this. This is one of the sort of the tripart uh, titling that has been common in sort of Christian theology for a number of centuries. Now, we often talk about the threefold office of Jesus, and, and King is one of those threefold offices. Um, but there are two others, and this is—I mean, this this could break the tie, or someone else could vault into the lead. So, what are the other two? Um, Titles of Jesus or roles that Jesus plays: King and the other two. Priest. Priest is one. Did you see the other one as well? Prophet. Um, yeah, I thought you I say prophet. Okay, so you're right. Prophet and priest. You're now in the lead. Uh, you're you're half a point ahead of Colin and Sarah. So well done. Um. Yeah, prophet, priest, and king. These are the titles, the roles that are usually assigned to Jesus. And I don't have time to go through all the biblical data. I mean, it's a lot more expansive than this. He does a lot more than this. But in terms of king, you know, he's obviously forthrightly declared to be the king. And you just have to ask yourself, well, what do these things do? Well, uh, you know, a king, you know, rules and reigns, right? And so Jesus is the one who rules and reigns. He, his first declaration is that the kingdom of God is at hand because he, the king, is at hand. That is, you know, the word he uses actually a word for spatial nearness. We're talking about being at hand. He means like, like, actually, it's right here. Like, I am proclaiming the kingdom because the kingdom is the rule and reign of God. The rule and reign is an abstraction. A rule and reign only works when you have a king. And so what he's really saying is, repent, the king is here. The rule and reign of God is here embodied in me. I am the king. We've already talked about a sonship and Davidic covenant. And so the son in that lens is the, is the son of David. I mean, son of David is another title, which we, which we don't have time to look at, but he, he's the son of David. He's the son of God. He's the king. So he's ruling and reigning in fulfillment of Davidic covenant in Israel. It's also eschatological, but it's Daniel 7. His kingdom will never end. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end, Isaiah 9. And, and so the, this kingdom is, is an everlasting kingdom because the king never dies. This is what God says to David in part of, the, in part of that Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. You will always have a son. You will always be someone in your lineage who reigns on the throne. Well, that's like a really, 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 really long lineage. Uh, you know, the, the, you think about it, there's like an infinite number of kings in succession, Or you have one king who actually reigns forever. And that's, of course, what you get. You get one king who will reign forever, which is why David never fails to have one of his descendants sit on the throne. But it's not just the throne of Israel. It's the throne of the universe. And then, of course, you are familiar with the name written on the thigh of Jesus in Revelation, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I think that probably functions in two ways, just like Song of Songs. Um, King of Kings functions in terms of uh, literal denotation and also the superlative. That is, he is the king of kings. He is the superlative king, the highest possible king. But he is also quite literally the king of other kings. That is, you have all the kings of the earth and he is their king. So it probably functions in two ways, you know, both literally and in terms of um, superlative. Uh, prophet, prophet, priest, and king is usually how we, we usually cast this. You know, as the prophet, Jesus speaks messages from God. That's what the prophets did. Thus saith the Lord, and so prophets deliver the message from God. But Jesus, and this is actually something. This is something very important, which helps you understand the nature of Jesus and His ministry as well. Jesus never says, "This is what the Lord says." Never. All of the prophets did, whenever the prophets delivered a message from God with full authority, they would always say, this is what the Lord says. Jesus never does that. And Jesus acknowledges that he is a prophet. I mean, people call him a prophet. He agrees that he's a prophet. He, He terms himself a prophet. But he only ever delivers his own message, not a this is what the Lord says. It is always a, in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, you get all these different times when Jesus will say, you have heard that it was said, but... I say to you. He does not say, you've heard it was said, but this is what the Lord says. He says, you've heard that it was said, but this is what I say to you. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, people are are amazed because he actually speaks with authority. Now, not only that, but this would take us a little bit too far afield. And I am being completely disciplined in terms of rabbit trails today you may have noticed that which is why this isn't nearly as fun as other weeks but nonetheless you know we're we're trying something new I'm far more aware of the foxes of the world today and so I'm trying to stay focused now what would be fascinating though and what would be actually better than what I have planned on talking about would be a rabbit trail which explores What is the connection between Jesus as the prophet and Jesus as the logos? That is, Jesus does not just deliver the message, he is the word. That's interesting. So you actually have, in the essential nature of Jesus himself, the prophetic word, Of the Father, and it's a lot more than just the prophetic word. It is the complete and comprehensive and total word, and so Jesus does not just deliver the word; He is the word. I mean, you can't have you can't have anyone who's more of a prophet than that. If if the role of a prophet is to um, deliver the message of God, Jesus is. We'd want to say. I mean, this is this is this is a metaphor in terms of his deity, but he is embodied as the message. He is the message, not just what he says. Now, that's that's fascinating in terms of what it means to be a prophet. Uh, He is the prophecy and the prophet in one, just in his existence. And then priest, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, Hebrews talks a lot about this. This is a very, very important uh, category. You know, the priest mediates between God and man. And so in the Old Covenant, you brought your sacrifice. You couldn't offer your own sacrifice to God. You brought your sacrifice. The priest offered it on your behalf. You actually couldn't even go into the temple uh as a regular person you could go into the courtyard of the temple but only the priests went into the temple and so there was a mediation critical uh mediatory role between the 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 priest and the people and god they offer sacrifices right in the old covenant you find out that that the priest and the levites were supposed to be without blemish just like the sacrifices were supposed to be without blemish so if you had certain um deformities or disqualifications you could not serve as a priest so you the image is you're supposed to have this quote-unquote blameless priest offering a blameless sacrifice well you never had either one of those really until you get to jesus and hebrews tells us that jesus you know makes us holy purifies us takes care of our sin once for all when he sacrificed himself that is so he actually jesus is not only the the high priest jesus is the priest And the sacrifice, and more than that, he's actually the temple itself. And and, you know, the New Testament makes this very clear in terms of fulfillment. I I don't have time to talk about that now. I've already talked about that at other times uh, with you. So, in terms of prophet, uh, priest, and king, Jesus is the comprehensive fulfillment, not only of those roles, but actually of everything clustering around those roles. So, in terms of being the priest, he's he's the high priest. He's the whole system. He's literally everything. He's the priest, the sacrifice, the altar, the temple, everything. That's very quick. But uh, what can we do? The, the, the foxes have been let loose. So uh, John's gospel talks about sonship as well. Now, John developed sonship a little bit differently from the synoptics. So what's interesting is that in the synoptics and in the book of Acts, and in the letters of Paul. The word God is used far more than the word father in reference to God. But John reverses this. So John actually uses the word father for God 127 times, which is an enormous amount. So so God is referred to as father 127 times in John. If you take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the book of Acts, and all of the writings of Paul, and you combine them, God is referred to his father 126 times. In other words, John refers, John has more references in his gospel. He has one more reference to God as father and his gospel than the, the other three gospels, Acts and Paul's writings combined. That by itself gives you a, a, a bit of an, a lens to understand how important this category is uh, for John. And in fact, John uses the word father more than twice as much as the next closest book, which is the Gospel of Matthew. Now, in uh, John 1.18 and John 3.16, you have Jesus not only as the son, but as the only son, the monogamous son, the one and only, the exclusive. Now, someone um, quote John 3.16 has to be from memory. Can't look it up. John three sixteen. Go. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Okay. Is that too much? <laughs> yeah, that's actually not accurate. Um, that was that was a good try. Um, no, someone... that's, that's exactly it. No, it's not. Say what you said. For God so loved the world that He gave His, oh, I said begotten. He did say begotten. He said. And then you added one and only. So you basically that would have been okay if you were if you were grafting King James into NIV and it was um, begotten slash one and only, um, which is actually precisely the point I'm going to be making in a moment. Um, but can anyone actually? Can, actually, can anyone actually quote John three sixteen from memory and not get it wrong? And I hate to say this, but but I have to deduct points for that. So so now it's once again a tie with Sarah and Colin. I, I I'm really sorry, but you you, it's John three sixteen. So um, anyone else want to get shot at it? Now everyone's just worried about getting it wrong. Yeah, so, so King James, and this is interesting because even if you don't read the King James much, you tend, there's certain verses we tend to quote in King James English. So for God still of the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Now, all right, is it begotten or is it one and only? So John three sixteen in King James Version will have begotten, NIV, one and only. Well, what is it? It makes all a difference. Friends. One and only refers to uniqueness begotten refers to generation now the creed that we looked at last week refers to jesus as being begotten so how do you interpret that seems to be a reference if it's begotten it's a reference to the father generating the son in terms of person not not nature If it's one and only, it's a claim of absolute and utter uniqueness. Now, here's something interesting. Over the last number of decades, New Testament scholars and Greek scholars have been uh, fairly, there's been a fairly strong consensus that the older translation of begotten is probably not the right way of translating this term. Um, Monogamous, if you take the first word mono, it's oneness, it's sort of uniqueness, right? And so most scholars have settled on the translation that it's his one and only son, that's the point. But not too long ago, actually, a really important article was written which examined all of the usages of monogamous in kind sort of comparative literature. And now there are a number of evangelical scholars who actually have argued in the past that it should be one and only who are starting to change their minds, uh, which is interesting. Actually, you know, a lot of you probably have read you know, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology or are familiar with it. They, they just put out a, a big second edition of it with a bunch of new stuff and one of the things that he's done is, is he he had an appendix in his original edition, which argued that monotheist should be one and only, and on the on the on the basis of the new evidence, he's actually removed that appendix and he says so in he, he says so in the book that you know, I, I think that maybe you know, maybe it does mean begotten actually you know, that that we've been wrong so all of that goes to say some of these really key words people are still trying to figure out the best way of bringing them across right now however you take it. Whether it's the father begetting the son or the son being the one and only son, or maybe there's intentional ambiguity as well. So you actually toggle back and forth and try to figure it out. And and so you think through both meanings, which then you could actually hybrid graft into one verse which would not be a quotation it would be a new translation on the fly but that would also have its merit which would be worth some points but we've already deducted them and I'm getting confused so we'll just stop there. So but there's something very special being said about the son with this term. Something very very unique about the son. No one else is the monogenes. It is only Jesus. Now turn to John 5 because this is a really important section. John 5. There's there's a lot more about sonship in John, actually, which I'd like us to look at, but we don't, uh, we don't have time. John 5, uh, verse 19. Actually, we'll start at verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, note the implication. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so they, they, they see, wait, there's something going on here where the fact that you your appeal is, I can do things on the Sabbath because my father is working on the Sabbath and, I, and, and so I'm working too. He's making a functional equivalent between himself and the father. Now, Jesus then says, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father uh, loves the son and shows him all he does. He does. So you have this very, straight, you have very strong claim, the father loves the son. But note, whatever the father does, the son also does. Well, the father creates a universe. The, the father is perfectly holy. The father is in sovereign control. Whatever the father does, the son does. The idea here, this is critical to understand layers of meaning of sonship, is Sonship is not merely essence and nature; it's also function. Jesus is functionally the Son of God because He functions just like the Father does. What the Father does, the Son does. And so he goes on to talk about how He can give life to people. Then, verse twenty-two: Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And, and so here Jesus is saying, I do everything the Father does, so the way you honor God, you're supposed to honor me. Everyone is supposed to honor me the way they honor God the Father, which is an absolutely incredible statement. The Father has life in himself. He's granted it to the Son to have life in himself, and it goes on and on. So the idea here is like Father, like Son. That is, It's, it's a functional sonship. Now." In John 8, you'll remember that the Jews are saying they're the children of Abraham. And Jesus says, you're not the children of Abraham because you're not doing what Abraham did. Abraham saw my day, rejoiced, and was glad. You are actually children of the devil. Your father is Satan. And they're highly offended. And Jesus says, look, you reject me because I tell the truth, and you're trying to kill me. That's lying and murdering. Who's a liar and a murderer from the beginning? Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So, you, because you are liars and murderers, your father is Satan. It, it's not some crass comment about copulation and paternity. It's, it's, it's functional. When you act like Satan, it proves your father is Satan. This is a massive Hebrew category, actually. So, Jesus will talk about um, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the sons of God. God makes peace. You make peace. You're like God's son, right? Um, sons of Belial. You are sons of the devil. Uh, you get this. You get this. It's an idiom in Hebrew, which often our English translations don't bring across literally. They give you the the, the meaning of the idiom. Um, but you can, you know, you can be sons of wisdom. Why? Because you're wise. You so so wisdom must be your your father. Uh, you can be sons of worthlessness. Why? Well, because you're lazy and good for nothing. And so you, you, the only way to explain how lazy and good for nothing you are must be that your father was laziness itself, right? So it's, it's this massive Hebrew idiom get all of the time. And so Jesus is applying that, but the way he applies the idiom functionally, in terms of function, is I am so much like God. The only explanation is that God is my father. I do everything that the father does. That is an absolutely astounding claim. And it's either blasphemy, which is why the Jews try to kill him, or it's true. In order to do everything the Father does, you have to be coextensive with the Father. To do everything the Father does, you have to be able to do everything God can do. Well, who can do everything God can do? Only God. And so this claim that the Son does everything the Father does is, is a high claim to deity. Now, John's gospel also um, talks a lot about Jesus uh, developing the the something they call the "I Am" statements. That is, Jesus is developing his identity through thickening, fleshing out, fulfilling particular themes with the reference to "I Am," um, as we'll see, sort of being encapsulated in terms of Yahweh Himself. So. You'll recall, you know, we don't have time to turn there, uh, but John 6, 35, he says, I am uh, the bread of life. I am the true manna that came from heaven. 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. You know, 10, 7, I am the gate for the sheep. 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. Then eleven twenty five 25 through 26, I am the resurrection and the life. 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And 15, 1, I am the true vine. So, you see, so Jesus is, is life and bread and light, the shepherd, resurrection and life, the way, the truth, the life, the true vine. And, and these I am statements, the interpretive key to them is, is not surprisingly Daniel 7:3, uh, and also. John 8, 57 through 59, where Jesus refers to himself as I am before Abraham was I am, and the Jews pick up stones to stone him. Jesus is taking the divine name on himself. We already talked about that a couple of weeks ago with the deity of Christ. But that that becomes then, when Jesus uses these other phrases, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection in life. It's all tied to his identity um, of deity that you get in John 8 in that section. Now, Uh, A lot more to say about that, but does anyone have any uh, questions or comments or anything you'd like to throw out there at this time? All right. Very, very, very quickly then. Just a few sort of miscellaneous things um, just to stimulate your own thinking. In reference to John 10, Jesus is the good shepherd. But again, in, in terms of um, layered fulfillment, Jesus is both shepherd and sheep, right? I mean, he is the good shepherd. He's also, he, he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But he's also the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, worthy is the lamb who is slain. And so you you often get actually these this sort of multi-sided view of Jesus, that, that, that he fulfills just massive categories all through the Old Testament, things that go together. Um, shepherd and sheep, you recall, of course, that he is the head of the church. Uh, he is the bridegroom. And he's the alpha and the omega. Hebrews and Colossians, say he holds everything together. He is the point of everything, the center of coherence. And one of the things that, that we will have completely um, failed at, completely, is none of this is actually academic. That is, everything we're taught about Jesus, we are taught so that we will come to him for salvation because Jesus is our, he is the savior, right? That's that's another extraordinarily important title, which also lines up with deity. Who is the great savior of Israel? God only God saves salvation is from the Lord and so our, the savior is divine and so we are we are to come to this Jesus this is the the more you can understand or the more you can appreciate the greatness and grandeur of Jesus the more you will find security in the salvation he offers and the more you will find yourself amazed that this one is the one who died for you. There is absolutely no one greater than Jesus, which is why we need to come to him for salvation. But then why we've, we've, we've failed, if, if after spending a, a, you know, a few Saturday mornings thinking about Jesus, if we're not driven to actually worship him, I mean, he is to be worshiped, he is to be loved, he is to be adored. He, he's to be exalted and magnified, and glorified. And he's supposed to find, we're supposed to find that that we, we want him to be in the central place of our lives because of how great he is. And not just great in an ontological sense, although he is, but also good. He, he is so great in his being, but it's so good to us in terms of what he has provided, particularly in atonement. And so if we had more time, you know, we'd we, we talk about. Um, atonement. How exactly is it that Christ atones for sin? Well, you know there, there, there's this whole rich typology fulfillment. You, know, you have this first prophecy, Genesis three fifteen, about the serpent's head being crushed, and and then you know you have Passover and Day of Atonement and the sacrificial system, and Jesus, the Lamb of God, fulfilling all of that. And then when Jesus dies, he he is the high priest sacrificing himself as you know, a substitutionary atonement. That is, he takes our place. He, he bears the wrath of God. He propitiates the Father, makes the Father favorable through the sort of assuaging his wrath. And he, he expiates or removes our sin. And so he cleanses us and removes our sin. And he satisfies the wrath and justice of God so that we are redeemed. You know, we are bought to belong to him and we're, we're ransomed. Part of that is, you know, the, the legal penalty for our sin is removed, but also the power of Satan is broken. So the devil is defeated. And in the defeat of the devil, you know, Jesus shows us how he upholds God's law, how he can actually purify us and then stands as our highest example. So that even his self-sacrifice, his self-sacrifice, his death on our behalf on the cross then, becomes sort of the greatest example of love and and commitment and faith and and moral goodness in all of the universe and then after this atonement the great vindication of his life is the resurrection you know brought back from the dead you know crowned and in glorification and then ascending to the right hand of the father to reign forevermore and it's from that right hand of the father where the son one day will return now There is uh, a lot, lot, lot more uh, to say, of course, about our Lord uh, and Savior, but that's our time uh, in terms of not just today, but also in terms of uh, the last four weeks, and a reminder that one of the glories of Christ is that Paul says we will discover the immeasurable, his immeasurable riches. You can't measure them which means that throughout all of eternity, you will never get to the bottom of them. You, there will always be more measuring. You know, there will always be, you'll never get to the bottom, you'll never totally fathom it, but you'll always continue to sink down deeper and deeper into who Christ is uh, throughout all of eternity. So, listen, I, I very much appreciate uh, your time and your commitment and your willingness to participate. And so as a last goodwill gesture um, to you, it's been absolutely Uh, delightful to see you Uh, as a last goodwill gesture as a parting token of love Sam will take you all out for dinner every last one of you anywhere you want to go all right well as you go out for your dinner whenever that is go in grace and peace